This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. Almost everyone out there is hoping that there's some kind of return to normal by August, September. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And over the next hour, we're going to explore the big money issues in the world of sports, talk about some of the biggest players in the industry. Today on the show, we're going to speak with PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. Of course, the PGA getting back to playing in a modified way, to say the least. But first, we have to talk about some of what's been going on this week. And Mike, I mean, wow. Another week where I think you and I are both sitting back trying to take it all in to try and understand some of how the sports world is reacting to the broader world. We look to sports as a cultural touchstone. I think you and I have both learned that over the course of our careers. And so much has come to sports in many ways. And We're going to talk later on with Eric Schatzker about player empowerment in the NBA. He spoke with one of the big owners, in fact, the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. We are seeing a lot of athletes speak out. Let's talk about what we saw in NASCAR this week. Well, NASCAR uh, has banned the uh, flying of the Confederate flag at any of their events, and it was a great move. Uh, there's one uh, African-American driver on the, currently on NASCAR right now, and that's Bubba, Bubba Wallace. He called for it. Uh, NASCAR reacted. Uh, but now I think there's gonna, a, lot, a lot of problems will ensue because their constituency is mostly Southern whites who like to fly the Confederate flag atop their Winnebago's, atop their grills, atop everything they have, their hats, their tattoos. How do you enforce it? And I think that's uh, going to be uh, step number two. A great move by NASCAR. Enforcing it's going to be a very difficult chore. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this. I'm Southern. I grew up uh, down South. I'm familiar with NASCAR. And, and I go back to the conversation I had a couple weeks ago with George Pine. He, of course, uh, was the COO of NASCAR. He talked a lot about understanding the demographics and understanding the fan base. It is a very devoted fan base. I mean, the only thing that I will say, and and I say this again uh, as a Southerner, I think you are talking about a very small, um, yet in some cases very vocal uh, part of the fan base that, uh, and, and NASCAR probably has, if we're looking across the sports, a disproportionate number of folks who, you know, defiantly in many ways would say, nope, this is my right, I'm going to do this, and they make the argument, which I personally think is bogus, that, you know, this is history, this is part of, uh, you know, my heritage, this is what they would say, you know, being a Southerner, uh, I think we as a country and we as a society have largely rejected that, rightly, uh, rejected that argument, and I think... It's interesting to think about what we've been hearing from athletes specifically and team owners and everyone around sports. And even in the broader world, you think about what's going on in Virginia with the 
monuments to Confederate generals being either taken down by the government or, in some cases, pulled down uh, by protesters. You've got things going on within the government to take Confederate generals and Confederate figures' names off of military bases over the next uh, several years. So, And you you even have, um, which I'm not sure people would have predicted, I mean, you have HBO Max uh, taking Gone with the Wind off of its streaming service, saying it's going to return that movie onto the service when it can appropriately frame from a historical perspective what that movie was all about. This is part of a bigger moment for sure. Well, the flag, as we all know, represents a very shameful error in our nation's history. Uh, Sadly, some people still proudly fly it. Uh, And in all the sports so far, all the leaders, all the players have come out in support of change, of awareness, of, uh, of, of standing up for, for all the African-Americans. But in NASCAR, one of their drivers, Ray Cicerelli, said, that's a BS taking down that flag. I'm done racing at the end of the year. He's the first athlete that's come out and, and been, he's the contrarian. And yeah. this shocks me. I said good riddance to him. Who needs him anyway? He's kind of a bust-out driver who's had one top 10 finish in three years. He won't be missed. But I think it's shameful of him to come out and say that he's done if the Confederate flags have to come down. And Mike, you talked about Bubba Wallace, you know, the lone black driver on the NASCAR circuit right now. And, you know, seeing his very public actions, what he is calling for, but also what he's demonstrating and wearing the Black Lives Matter T-shirt while he's been racing. I think he's done that now a couple of times, changing the painting of his car uh, to reflect all of that. He's gotten a lot of kudos from other athletes. I saw a tweet from LeBron James earlier this week uh, about that. So clearly drawing a lot of attention there. You know, this experience that he is describing really does take me back to the conversation we had earlier in the week with Terrell Davis. And there were so many elements of that conversation that I think you and I really appreciated in the moment and in retrospect. And one of them was about his own experience, and he was very candid about that. Let's listen to that. I mean, I've had a number of incidents where I had one where they put the dog on me. They pulled my buddy and I over in high school and put us on the trunk of the car, and the big old German Shepherd was, I mean, within an inch of my face, and I can smell the heat of his breath. And they didn't tell us why. They just pulled us off the car, did that, searched us and just basically left. You know, I would ride my bike from inner city San Diego all the way to the north side of uh, San Diego. We would do it with our friends quite often. And I remember every time we would ride, and it's a long ride, too. It's not like a a mile or two. It's pretty far. And we would probably more times not get stopped by law enforcement. Most times it was friends. They pull you over and they'll ask you a question. You know, where are you guys from? And we're like, yeah, we're from San Diego, like inner city San Diego. And then they'll you know, stop you for a few minutes, and they'll let you go. A few times, I remember one of them asking a few times, kind of a, in a friendly way, I know, kind of maybe in a funny way, but it wasn't funny to us. It was like, hey, you guys didn't steal any bikes, did you? And we're like, wow. no, we didn't steal any bikes, man. You know, it would, it would almost be like, okay, I know we're going to get stopped because we're way away from where we live. We don't live nowhere in this place. And you can catch all of that conversation that Mike and I had with Terrell Davis on our podcast feed. It's a long conversation, uh, fair warning, but worth it, I would say, because he was very honest and really spoke 
from the heart about his own experience, conversations, you know, as he said in that little clip with his dad, what he says to his own children, what he remembers about growing up in San Diego. And uh, it's powerful in many ways. And I think, Mike, we have been very fortunate to have some of these conversations with folks and and getting that insight that I'm going to say something that you and I have both said. You and I don't have. We we are like old white guys, and we did not have anything like this experience. We will never have anything like this experience, I would imagine, in our lives. And uh, I think it's relevant. And you said earlier in the week something that has stuck with me, this notion of hearing versus listening. And I think listening to people has become that much more important. Those are the two key words that I think the, uh, have been, been predominant in our conversations this week. And I urge our, our listeners to don't just hear what Terrell Davis is, is saying. Listen to what he's saying. And try to imagine yourself in that situation because some of the things he said are startling. And if they happened to me when I was a teenager, I don't know how I would, how I would react. Right. If it happened to me every day and I had to look over my shoulder and, and worry about that. I mean, you know, when we were kids, the only thing we worried about is getting home and supper time and getting our homework done and, 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 and being good, good citizens. These, Terrell Davis and the young blacks in this country have had to worry about much, much more every single day. And it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, we did a lot of listening because Terrell does most of the talking, and he was absolutely, on a scale of 1 to 10, he was a 15. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. So do check that out on our podcast feed. I do wonder, Mike, you know, you've been doing this for a while, as have I. We have seen moments, you know, catalytic moments in both American history and and sports history. This one does feel different, but I wonder, you know, in the course of time, what it will ultimately mean. It feels like, and we're going to talk about this with Eric Schatzker in a few minutes, that the ownership of the big Sports teams and in the major leagues are, to your point, listening a little bit more and supporting. You know, Josh Harris, who Eric spoke with, was incredibly direct about how he feels about player empowerment. And obviously, the NBA has been probably the best model of that. But as you think about this and you think about the, the course of history, how does it feel in the moment to you? Well, I think right now it feels like a James Bond movie to me. Um, just when you when Bond, you think he's gotten rid of one villain around the corner and around yeah. the next band, here comes another villain. So it seems like every time we've taken a step forward in listening and an understanding and trying to affect change after George Floyd's death and listening to all the sports teams and the athletes who have come out, Along comes some, another problem. Here comes the Confederate flag, and here comes a race driver saying he's quitting at the end of the year. And here come NASCAR fans that said, you want to take my Confederate flag? Come and get it. It reminds me of Charlton Heston when he said, I'll give you my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> so, you know, the next next stop for NASCAR is uh, Homestead in Florida. That's uh, this Sunday. And the following Sunday and Father's Day, they're in Talladega, which is in Alabama. Big, big, you know, southern Confederate flag-waving state down there. Uh, are we going to have physical skirmishes when authorities come to a Winnebago or to a, a tailgate party and said, uh, gentlemen, ladies, give me your, take down your Confederate flag? What's going to happen? Are there, is, is there going to be violence? Are there going to be confrontations? I, I, don't, I don't see a smooth uh, secession here from uh, f- uh, separating those people from the Confederate flags. Well... You know, my view of it, again, as, as a Southerner, is going back to this notion of a vocal, small, small minority. 
you know, I wonder, and maybe I'm being overly optimistic, you know, I, I wonder if you will see uh, nationally a portrait of people, um, you know, NASCAR fans and beyond, who are, again, as we've been talking about, on the right side of history here, you know, that maybe there will be a few people who, for whatever reason, feel the need to demonstrate or show that, you know, some suit over in Charlotte can't tell them what to do in terms of what they're going to have on their cooler or what they're going to fly from their RV. Um, I, I am cautiously optimistic that the vast majority of people would look at this decision from NASCAR and essentially say either A, I can't believe that we have to tell people this, and of course that's the right thing to do, and I would never imagine doing this, or will, as the moment it feels like we're in is calling for now, stand up and be part of the solution and you know, be part of the vocal majority who are able to say to people, that's just not right. You know, we, we as a society, we as a country have moved on from that moment, and regardless of what you think about the flag, what you, this uh, person who might be flying the flag, think about this. This is what we have decided, and this is what it means to a broader group of people. So we'll see. You're, you're right. I think we're going to have a lot of these moments over the course of the coming weeks and months. And, you know, certainly when fans are back in the stands, you do wonder uh, what some of the interactions are going to be, not just in NASCAR, but uh, in sports around the world. We look to sports as we started this conversation saying we look to sports, you know, as a cultural touchstone. And uh, we also are in a time and this is part of the conversation you're going to hear in just a minute with Eric Schatzker, where uh, the leagues and the owners are essentially saying in a different way, uh, or taking a very different stance, I should say, uh, for their players, on behalf of their players, the idea that we're you know a week out or so now from Roger Goodell doing one of the biggest 180s we've ever seen on the part of a league and saying, we got it wrong, and we need to allow our players to express themselves. It, it feels important to me. It does. It, what, what would be important to me is to hear more NASCAR drivers come out in support of banning the Confederate flag. I haven't heard anybody. Yeah. Bubba Wallace is the only one who said it was great. Uh, Martin Truex, I think, won the race last night. And, you know, there's a, there's a perfect opportunity right there. Hey, hats off. I, I applaud NASCAR for banning the Confederate flag. And, and, and ironically, fans are going to be allowed at this Sunday's race at Homestead, and they're going to be allowed at Talladega a week from Sunday on Father's Day. So this is going to be a big test, and it could be a confrontation in a moment. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Well, I'm really excited because joining us now from Bloomberg headquarters, Eric Schatzker, longtime friend of mine, colleague, collaborator, partner, uh, so many things, Eric. We've known each other for a long time, and we have a deep shared interest in all things Wall Street. This intersection of Wall Street and sports is one of the most fascinating out there. You, as part of our Front Row series, uh, where things show up on the Bloomberg Terminal first, so a nice plug for that, uh, you caught up with Josh Harris, who people in the investment world know very well, but people in the sports world increasingly paying attention to him because he and his partner David Blitzer and a few others, they own the New Jersey Devils, they own the, own the Philadelphia 76ers, they own a piece of a big franchise over in the Premiership, and maybe most timely of all, they've at least been rumored to be looking at the New York Mets. Let's start there. What did he have to say about that? 
Jason, I know how badly you and Mike want to know whether Josh Harris and David Blitzer and their partners are buying the Mets, and I'm going to disappoint you. Of course I asked him the question, and here's what he said. I'm going to quote him directly. We never really comment on things that we're looking at. You've heard that line before. It is appropriate cover for people who want to do deals because the last thing a person in his position wants to do is tip his hat. If he's looking at the Mets, there's a negotiation involved with the Wilpons. There may be other bidders lurking in the background. He wants to be as coy as possible. Um, And of course, being a co-founder of Apollo and formerly working years ago at Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, uh, you know, these these kinds of postures, if you will, are very familiar to him. So when he says, we never talk about things that we may or may not be looking at. He is wrapping himself in the same cover that most dealmakers wrap themselves in, which is not tipping their hat either way. But I know how badly so many Met fans would like to see him and Josh, uh, him and David Blitzer come in because look at what they've done with the 76ers. They took a basket case of a franchise and with a very Wall Street-like strategy, yeah. long-term financially savvy strategy built a contender and who wouldn't like to see the Mets at least contend right trust trust the process that was the uh, phrase wasn't it down in Philadelphia that's right trust the process now of course the NBA you know like every other pro sports league on the planet is in a bit of a hiatus now so we have yet to see coming out of the pandemic what happens to that strategy but up until now I don't think anybody would say that it hasn't shown much success. So we'll move on to the NBA in a second, but I have to say you must have had the same thought as I did, which is if we have a Josh Harris slash David Blitzer versus Stevie Cohen showdown, Stevie Cohen, of course, legendary, notorious in some circles, hedge fund manager who has also expressed interest in the Mets, in buying all of the Mets. Uh, I mean, they would. They wouldn't be able to not do an episode of Billions about that, right? Wouldn't. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> wouldn't that be something? The big question, I guess, would have to be for probably the league. Yeah. They look at Steve Cohen, who certainly has many billions of his own, and being a New Yorker, would probably feel just as much interest in commitment, interest in commitment to passion for the game and the team. As, as as Josh Harris and David Blitzer, but Josh Harris and David Blitzer have demonstrated um, acumen, skill, yeah. experience as owners. I ha- I'd have to believe that that would count for a lot with the league. Eric, Steve Cohen had a deal in principle to buy the Mets from the Wilpons. However, there was a little clause in there that he would not get control of the team for a certain period of time. Do the Wilpons still want to own 20% of the team to anybody they sell it to? Right. That seemed to be one of the sticking points or at least one of the conditions that was set forth in the discussions with Steve Cohen. It remains to me, for what it's worth, guys, totally unclear whether the Wilpons want to do that and whether they want that five-year sunset. Um, and I honestly, because Josh is being so coy about this, have no idea how he feels about yeah. it either. All right, so let's talk a little bit about other sports-related topics because, as you say, he's got an NHL franchise, he's got an NBA franchise. Both those leagues have gotten back to work. He, or are getting back to work, I should say. 
He's got a window into that. He's also got a window into a league, especially in the NBA, that has embraced more than any this era of empowerment. What did he have to say about owning and managing a franchise in this era that we've been talking so much about in this unprecedented time? Well, let's divide them divide that question if we can, Jason, sure. into two answers. One concerns the economics of pro sports at a at a you know in the pandemic era, and the other concerns um, how to manage and guide a pro sports franchise uh, in what is clearly becoming an era of um, I would hope um, progress. Uh, in in race relations in America. So let me answer the economic question first. So long as neither Josh Harris nor David Blitzer nor any other owner in any other league can either pack a stadium, right, or fill an arena, as Josh himself said, the economics of pro sports are brutal. Brutal, right? This is just like so many other businesses. This is a business that relies on capacity, the degree to which you can you know, as an airline, right? Fill the seats in a plane. Same goes for filling a, filling the seats in an arena or a stadium. And they're eager to get back to work because without getting back to work now, there's no way that they'll be able to get back to normal. Uh, but between now and then, yes, it's brutal. Josh seems very confident that over the longer term, valuations of sports franchises are going to remain intact or recover perhaps from a depressed level where they might be today if if anything were to trade Um, and that the league will return Uh, leagues excuse me because we're talking about the nhl and the nba here and of course you know in the background is the premiership the football uh, league in in britain Um, you know he's confident that things will go back to normal but he's also very realistic about how long it's going to take human behavior has changed People are fearful. They're going to be careful about where they go and what they do with their personal time and, more importantly, personal space. And uh, it's it's a good thing for the Sixers and a good thing for the Devils that he and David Blitzer have pretty deep pockets because the economics are going to be brutal for some time. Yeah, absolutely. Eric, obviously social injustice is a very topical subject that's being discussed uh, almost daily around the planet right now. What did he have to say about player empowerment? He said, I need to go 100% to support player empowerment. And you're absolutely right. The NBA of all the pro sports leagues in this country has been further ahead on that subject than others. Um, But I asked you know, Josh, what does 100% mean? It means encouraging your players to express themselves freely and be willing to speak out if they feel comfortable in whatever way they believe helps make the world a better place and to afford them the platforms and the leadership and talk to them about the issues, but encourage them to speak out freely. And the truth of the matter is the NBA is a player's league. We get it. Many of the players on our team, they can play wherever they want. And so we need to be an attractive home for them and make them feel comfortable that we are on the same page, that we're listening to them. I can never walk in their shoes. We come from different backgrounds, but we have to embrace diversity. What he's talking about is giving them a role to lead the country forward on these issues. And, you know, Josh Harris is saying, I'm on what he would call the right side of that debate. I want my players to speak freely. I want them to have a platform. And 
importantly, he said, I'm going to follow their lead. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, it's a great interview. Uh, Check it out on YouTube, on the Bloomberg Terminal, uh, everywhere you consume Bloomberg content. Eric Schatzker, thank you. And thank you for uh, digging in with Josh Harris to all those sports issues, because I'm fascinated, obviously, by him as a private equity investor. But his imprint, the imprint that he and David Blitzer have made on several notable sports franchises uh, is massive. And uh, who knows? They could be uh, coming to the artist formerly known as Shea Stadium before too long. I'm Jason Kelly, along with Mike Lynch, and today we're speaking with PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. The PGA, it is back. You know, I was thinking, Jay, as I was prepping for this, this is a big moment. I, I, I dare I say for the sports world, almost feels like a big moment for America. Some sense of normalcy happening this week. First of all, how are you? How have you sort of been doing through all of this? First of all, it's it's uh, it's great to be with you, Jason, and you, Mike. And uh, I think I'm like everybody else. It, this is certainly different, and it's posed, uh, you know, some the pandemic has posed some real challenges for all of us, and for for all businesses, and for us, we we stepped offline on March 12th in the middle of our flagship event, the Players Championship, and when we did so, at that point, it was hard to predict uh, when we would return. And at the outset, as we all tried to understand what the coronavirus would mean for our business and for our return, it was, you know, we were, again, we weren't sure when it would be. So to, to be here the week of, of June 8th, uh, to be returning with 16 of the top 20 players in the world, top five in the world, 100 past winners, um, I, feel, I feel really proud. Uh, I feel really proud. I feel really confident. And um, this has been a challenge that, you know, has been significant, but I feel like as a team and as a sport and with the involvement of our players, we're uh, we're ready to come back and provide some inspiration and to get back to the great work we do in all the communities where we play and do it in a safe, responsible, and thoughtful manner. Jay, take me through the uh, logistics. We all know what the rules are in public courses. You can't touch the flag. There's no rakes in the trap. you got to keep a social distance. Uh, what do caddies and players have to keep a distance? Who touches the clubs? Uh, they have to wear gloves, et cetera, et cetera. What, 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 what are going to be the logistics that the fans are going to see? Well, it's um, it, it, our team actually for I would say several weeks went back and really tried to identify all the movements of a player, a caddy, and the constituents that will be on site at our tournaments and. Keep in mind, we have kept our bubble very small. There will be no spectators, and we've tried to go with a minimalist approach, particularly here for the first four weeks. So, you know, really, our sport lends itself very naturally to social distancing. It's why most golf courses have been open through this pandemic. And so looking at the interactions between players and caddies, you just pointed to two of them, uh, you know, that exchange of clubs. I think you're going to see players grabbing clubs and returning clubs more so uh, than you would have in the past. You'll also see clubs and, and flagsticks being sanitized uh, once the hole is completed. Uh, there will be sanitization products on every hole. And we have shared with our players and our caddies, you know, a, a return to golf playbook that really identifies all the ways that we can mitigate the risk of the virus. So, but we go into it with all that effort, Mike. It, it, you know, you, you, you try and identify everything, but I think we all have to be open to the fact that we've got to watch what happens. We've got to listen to our players and caddies and, 
and fans, and we'll just keep getting better as we go forward here. But uh, we've tried to start with, with, uh, with being aggressive on all fronts. And Jay, speaking of li- listening to players and caddies, tell us a little bit about these conversations that you've had sort of in the interim. What are they most worried about, both the players and the caddies? I mean, they are the stars. They are the constituents for you and, and obviously the folks that we're all looking toward. What was the dialogue like along the way? Because I'm, And I'm thinking of this in the context of other professional sports where some have done really well and some have maybe done not so well when it comes to, you know, that dialogue. Yeah, so we, we I'll just provide a little bit of context to our governance. We're, we're uh, the tour is a membership organization. We're governed by uh, five independent directors and four player directors. Our player directors are uh, Johnson Wagner, James Hahn, Kevin Kisner, and Jordan Spieth. And then we have a player advisory council of 16 players, which is chaired by Charlie Hoffman, uh, that is representative of our entire membership. And so when we walked away on May 12th, sorry, on March 12th, we, we had our first policy board meeting on March 19th. And between March 19th and today, we've had nine policy board meetings, four player advisory council meetings, a long way of saying that whether it was our overall schedule and how our events would flow from June 8th to the end of the year to how this uh, 13-week absence would affect or 13-tournament absence would affect eligibility on the PGA Tour and Corn Ferry Tour to our actual testing and safety programs, our players were very involved uh, throughout the process. So, you know, as you as you look back, we 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 came forward on, in the in each of those three areas at separate points in time, as we were building towards our return. And and uh, I think our players are probably reflect the way that that we all feel. Um, I'm they're excited to get back. They, I think, are proud of the fact and comfortable with the fact that we have been extremely thoughtful uh, and have prioritized health and safety. And at the same time, they're looking at this as a point in time for not only themselves and the PGA Tour, but for our game, uh, for all the reasons I mentioned before. I think this is an opportunity for people to see that, you know, golf is a uniquely safe sport as it relates to social distancing. And, you know, with some of the other challenges we have with resuming normal activities, this is a sport that has, you know, has been played uh, for the most part throughout the pandemic. So hopefully use this time to bring more people into our sport and inspire people. Obviously, the pandemic has been something that dramatically affected all of us. The last two weeks, though, we've heard from a lot of athletes amid civil unrest and amid a lot of focus on you know what important people around the world are, are thinking, especially athletes. Talk to us a little bit about any conversations you, you've had with players. Again, your governance structure is a little bit different maybe from other sports, but, but I do wonder what you say to them and, and what they say to you in terms of speaking out publicly. Yeah, well... well um... Listen, I think like so many people, I look back to, you know, to 10 days ago and in and through the weekend prior. And, and for me as a, as a person, as a dad, um, and ultimately as a leader of this organization, you know, I was saddened and I was having a very difficult time comprehending what I was seeing and what I was hearing. And so one of the things that, that I did was, uh, I can't. I I wrote to our employees and I wrote to our players. And when I said 
you know, one of the challenges I was having. It, you know, the root of it for me is, you know, that expression of if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And I'm, I'm an action-oriented person. You know, I want to move to make a difference, and I wasn't certain what the solution was. But as I've said to our players and I've said to our, our employees and I've said to everybody that, uh, that we work with, you know, we're determined to listen, to be thoughtful, to ask a lot of questions, to open up the dialogue, and to be a part of the solution. That's what we're going to do as a tour, and that's what I think we're going to do as a game. As I talk to other leaders across our sport, as hard as this this period of time is, and as hard as this is to um, you know to to imagine, um, I imagine us using again using this point in time to to really make a difference as it relates to uh, using our game in that regard. But, Jay, you know, how to, will you be up beyond? Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jay. No, I was just going to say, and I've, I had a, um, you know, interestingly, we were due to release our, uh, or I was, I was due to speak to the membership via video uh, last week, and we had arranged to have Harold Varner, who's on our Player Advisory Council, as I mentioned earlier, was a big part of our return to golf. We were going to talk about our return to golf, and then uh, you you had uh, the situation, a horrible situation with George Floyd arise, and you know, I, you know. Obviously, that was something that uh, he and I talked about and, and and needed to address. And I think it's really important for our players uh, across all of our tours to hear from those people that are that are affected. And that was a point in time where you know it lent itself. And Harold has penned a letter. He spoke to you know spoke to the membership, and you know we're 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 moving forward in a way that uh, has us again identifying the ways that we're going to be part of the solution. Jay, how will this broadcast be different from normal broadcasts? I had read that Jim Nance will be the only broadcaster on site. Yeah. So, so how does he get? You know, the you know, okay, we got one fifty six to the to the flag. We get the what what club selection? Uh, what what's the player hitting? Will that information not will be non existent in this broadcast, or there will be someone with a two way getting them all that information? You know, Mike, we, there's been a lot of talk about the steps that we've taken to return in a safe and responsible way. I got to tell you that Golf Channel, CBS have been, you know, equally thoughtful. And, you know, when you, when you step back and you look and you think about what you're going to see, ultimately the way that we're producing it is we're producing it with a lot less people. And you'll see talent from Orlando. You'll see talent in, you know, from different parts of the country that normally would be on property calling the PGA Tour event that will not be doing so at least for the first four weeks but i think that jim will have access to you know all of the same information that he would he would normally have i think coordinating uh and moving the conversation amongst talent given the fact that they're not together they're kind of used to that because you know generally speaking you'll never have more than two of them that are together because they're walking the golf course or they're different different places on the golf course and and the team is rehearsed and is ready to ready to go um, on that front and i think you'll see that you know we're gonna we're gonna try and use this point in time it's different but it also gives you some opportunities to uh you know to innovate with uh with technology and with how we share information and, and uh excited for fans to see us come back uh i'll be in a different manner i think it's a manner that um, is still going to be quite compelling and so, Jay, what what is the the realistic timeline, and what is the realistic scenario under which 
we're all walking along a golf course cheering our favorite players at this point. Well, I, on uh, on Friday evening, the uh, governor of Ohio, uh, Governor DeWine, announced that um, uh, professional sports uh, teams and uh, the Memorial Tournament will be able to return fans, um, right. and that for us is week six. So we'll have up to 8,000 fans a day. Uh, at the Memorial Tournament, and that doesn't mean that we'll have fans in each subsequent week. Uh, you've got to you've got to look at where we are market to market, and we've spent a tremendous amount of time working with local and state authorities. But it's a plan that um, our partners at the Memorial Tournament, our team, has spent a lot of time identifying. And uh, with eight thousand people, that's twenty percent, and we feel like we can just like we're returning this week, we can return fans in a safe and responsible manner. And uh, and that's our intention, and hopefully that leads to momentum um, where you'll see more tournaments returning fans and you'll see those uh, percentages increase as we go forward. What's the, but again, yeah, what's the pr- you know, you look at our sport and, and you know, we're, gonna, we're played over several hundred acres. Right. So, uh, you know, open air over several hundred acres, and there's a way for us to keep people in different parts of the golf course and socially distant. And that's the basis for the plan itself. So there's no corporate tents. There's no fans. Uh, there's a, obviously a, a big hit revenue-wise. But the purse is still $7.5 million, and it looks like it's pretty consistent going forward. How are you able to get such a, you know, a large purse when you've taken such a financial hit? I look at it two ways. You know, our, our players, we've eliminated 30% of our tournaments this year. And our sport is a meritocracy. So as we return, players are guaranteed nothing. They've got to go and they've got to earn it. And so I think it was important for us, given the significant number of events we canceled, to try and keep our purse levels in the FedEx Cup as we had originally intended. But as is always the case, in doing so, we want to make sure that, you know, we are a partner to every community we play in and we're an invited guest. And so. Even though we've been offline, if you look at uh, the match, the tailor-made driving relief, the efforts of our athletes, you know, Brooks Kepler coming out right away and contributing $100,000 to Ryan Palmer, over $150,000 to Billy Horschel doing extraordinary work here, to our tournaments, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, a million dollars to COVID relief, Zura Classic, a million and a half. You know, we, we've, we've generated $35 million plus for COVID-related charities. And we have plans to, you know, to continue that through these events and do the great work that we do, making a big difference. So those two things go hand in hand, and we're proud to return in that way. You know, it's interesting on, on that point, Jay, and, and maybe this sort of stitches back to something we were talking about earlier. But, you know, I do think that, you know, you mentioned you and, and others, and I think we all feel this sense of, you know, we're all action-oriented people. That's why, you know, we're all type A here talking on the radio, right? <laughs> like, this is who we are. Um, we want to do something in these moments, whether it's related to COVID or, or whether it's related to some of the more recent issues related to protests and, and really changing society. I, I mean, I do wonder, given the charitable nature and the underpinning that golf has had, how you think about that going forward and maybe some of the discussions that you're having. I mean, is that the sort of thing that comes up in a conversation with Harold Varner? I mean, are people thinking about going forward differently in in that regard from the charitable aspect or or from the volunteer aspect? 
Every time there's a significant challenge in our country or in the world, if you look back, the PGA Tour has has stepped right in and done everything it can to make a difference through our tournaments and through the power of our players. And there is no question, Jason and Mike, that a lot of conversation has been had, you know, over the last 13 weeks by, you know, certainly within the tour, across the industry. And you've seen a lot of the action I just mentioned from our Mm -hmm. players who've proactively gone out and done so. But the reality is that COVID is with us for, you know, an extended period of time. We're not sure how long we're going to be dealing with this, but communities are going to need to have the testing resources. We're going to need to continue to provide support. So you'll see us do that with and through our tournaments. Um, And, you know, I look at, you mentioned Harold. Harold's got his, the HV3 Foundation. Um, And when you read the letter that he, he wrote or you listen to our conversation, you know, providing access to the game of golf, Along the lines, I mean, he was given, as he says, just some unbelievable opportunities, and he wants to do the same for young kids. And, and I think that you're going to see a lot of that from our players. And, and you know, PGA Tour has supported the first tee for over 20 years. We've got 150 chapters, 144 in the U.S. Uh, we're in over 5,000 elementary schools. We're teaching kids life skills through the game of golf. You can expect to see us. As, as, as strong as we've been behind the first tee, moments like this serve as inspiration to do more and more and more. And I don't think that's unique to the PGA Tour. I think we all find ourselves saying, okay, if you want to be part of the solution, you've got to be doing more than what you were doing in the past, and you've really got to understand what is happening right now and how you can adjust in a way to make a difference. Jay, will there be daily tests for the players, uh, temperature checks, et cetera, all the other stuff that uh, we've become used to? You know, the way it's going to work, Mike, is, is every player before they travel to a tournament will be tested. Before, you know, they're going to travel because they tested negative. When they arrive, uh, they'll go to a testing facility. We're fortunate to have secured mobile testing labs and vans with our partner, Sanford Health. They'll turn around those tests in two to four hours, which is important because Players need to prepare to play and prepare to compete, and we don't want to take away resources from those communities. So these are our vans. We've purchased all the you know the testing uh, equipment and resources. And then each day we'll have a layered approach. There will be temperature checks, uh, thermal screens, and then uh, also we have a, a questionnaire that will prompt players trying to identify any COVID-related symptoms, and that will happen each day. And then to keep the bubble small, we're providing charter flights for players and caddies, in, in this case from Fort Worth to, to South Carolina for the RBC Heritage next week. And to get on that plane, you will have to have tested negative. So that's the basis for our testing program. And then when you put on top of that all the things that we're going to be doing in terms of uh, social distancing and, and sanitization during the course of the week, we feel good about our protocols. And more importantly, they're not ones that people that are accustomed to running world-class professional golf tournaments exclusively. It's not something that we design. It's something that we design in concert with our medical advisor and medical experts across broad realm. So, Jay, as, as we wrap up here, I mean, I do wonder, you know, we're talking to you in, in this moment of extraordinary change and, and certainly a year that none of us could have anticipated. Mm-hmm. You know, you've long been involved 
in the game, uh, of course, and, and you've seen it ebb and flow in popularity and and all the various uh, things that, that you've seen. I, I do wonder, from a personal level, like how does a year like this sort of change you in, as a leader? How does it change you in terms of what you think you know golf can and, and should be in broader society, in the world of sports? I mean, it is such an interesting moment, I think. Yeah, I think uh, I, I agree. It's it's um, you know think about where you were on New Year's Eve and where you are now, and what your plans were for the year, what you were trying to accomplish in your business, and the realities that we've all we're all now confronted with. And so I think it, it's it's a moment in time where you know you're going to grow as a leader, and it's a it's a moment to you know as as hard as it is, you have to embrace the challenges that are in front of you. You have to surround yourself with and lean on the great teams that you know that that uh, you've built and you work with, and it's a moment that requires great transparency and thought. And so that's how I and we have tried to address the challenges that we're going to continue to address as we go forward. And then when you step back and you look at the PGA Tour and, for that matter, all the tours that we operate, this is an extraordinary time for the game of golf. And it's an extraordinary opportunity. Um, and I was saying that several weeks ago as we were thinking about the impact of COVID. And now with this social unrest, my perception has not changed. I think that, you know, we've got to continue to do a great job to make what I think is the greatest game in, in the world, continue to make it more and more welcoming, more and more inclusive, identify issues of access and open us up to it, you know, to the opportunities it, it can present to so many people. And we'll do that with the first tee. We'll do that with our industry partners. And we'll make sure as you watch our events going forward, we're celebrating the uniqueness of our game. So, you know, as hard as, as, as this has been for all of us, I find inspiration in the opportunity and, you know, we're ready to get going and, and, and share that. Jay, I think one of the big reasons for your success is uh, you can relate to all the players. And I don't want to embarrass you, but uh, I live about three blocks away from Winchester Country Club where the Monaghan name is splattered over every single plaque in the clubhouse. Uh, between Jay's great-grandfather, grandfather, his dad, Joe, and himself, I think you've won, is it 23 or 24 father-son, grandfather, grandson championships? Maybe, maybe more. I don't know. But I all I know is it's like Monaghan is all over the place. <laughs> and it, it really it really is. And, um, and, and I think that's a big key from my outside uh, vantage point for your relationship with the players. You know, you're not some corporate suit who's sitting at the top who's never picked up a sandwich and played golf. And do you attribute a lot of your success with your relationship with the players to your playing days and, and your knowledge of the game? What I would say, Mike, is that I think the thing that helps me in the role I have and, and the great responsibility I have is I have a tremendous passion for the game. Uh, and that's because thanks to my mom and dad, I started playing when I was, you know, six years old and I played it, you know, I still, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still trying as hard as I possibly can, you know, to get better and better and better. And it's a game of a lifetime. And so I can't relate to how good our players are because I've never actually walked a course playing the way that they play. But I think I have the same amount of passion for the game as anybody that's on this planet. And that, you know, that drives me every single day. Well, Jay, we really appreciate uh, your time with us. We know it's an incredibly busy week and an exciting week in, in many ways. And I know we're all looking forward uh, to seeing golf really back in action, and especially as we move toward that moment where 
it's even more normal and we're seeing the crowds and we're seeing the cheers because obviously I think all of us agree that some of the greatest moments in sports over the last 20, 30, 50 years uh, have come on some of the courses here in the United States and beyond. Thank you so much for joining us, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. Well, Mike, you were the, to, to turn a phrase, you were like the ace in the hole there, like coming in with the, uh, the local club reference. I loved it. Uh, he's a, he's sort of local, local boy made good in many ways, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He, uh, went to, uh, Belmont High School. He went to the University of Massachusetts and, uh, he just sort of worked his way up here. He was, uh, with the local tournament, uh, the, the, that's played on Labor Day up here. He ran that and then just ascended naturally to his position. And, um, I, I just think he's a great leader. Um, he's well-respected by the players. As I said, he's not some corporate suit that was just, you know, never picked up a golf club. He identifies, and he's a good listener. Yeah. Uh, you know, he talked about the, the number of um, different committees he had uh, where he talks to players all the time and he gets their feedback. Uh, this great thing he's doing with Harold Vonner, uh, to me, really impressed me. Yeah. And also, he's, he's sensitive to... Um, uh, the impression that he's going to create if these players are give, given tests, well, it, 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 they're not taking away from the public. They, uh, they're their own vans that they purchase for temperature checks and thermal screening, and, and uh, it, it's not taking away anything from the public. So I think he's, he's really researched this thing, and I think he's done a great job to prepare him going forward. Yeah, d- definitely a thoughtful guy, and, and you, can, you can tell that uh, I think amid everything that's going on in a and I say this in a very positive way, I think he feels the weight of it in in many ways. He feels the weight of, you know, leadership of a sport that people are going to be looking at. I do wonder, and and I wonder about your perspective on this, it actually could be kind of an interesting moment for golf as, you know, there are fewer sports. I mean, we'll we'll do our uh, (laughs) obligatory baseball can't get its act together here um, mention, but, (laughs) you know, People do love golf in many ways, and I think you think about the match part two that we saw a few weeks ago. I mean, this could be a moment where maybe some new stars emerge, and eh, who knows? Well, there's always uh, the great part about sports is that it's unscripted, and nobody knows what the ending is going to be. And we saw six million people tune in for a a three-and-a-half-hour match with uh, Brady and Manning and Mickelson and Tiger Woods. And I think these ratings are going to be off the charts. Uh, This is the Colonial, which is a nice tournament down in Fort Worth, Texas. It's not one of the majors where more people tune into. But I think people are going to just they're going to tune in. It's just uh, they're curious. They're going to see what the interaction is like. Is, is is, Is the caddy touching the... Uh, the grip and then handing it to the player, little things like that. And, um, and I think it's going to, people are looking for hope right now, just yeah. hope. You know, just w- where is the avenue back to normalcy? And I think this, is, this will give people a lot of hope. And if, if not hope, a diversion for four hours every day or maybe longer. Right, exactly. Well, and if nothing else, as he pointed out, this is a sport, as you have experienced, yeah. that uh, it's sort of made for this time. You know, you can be outside. You don't really uh, need to be touching anybody or anything. And it, it is fairly uh, easily adapted to the moment that we find ourselves in. So uh, maybe yeah. it'll be an interesting uh, interesting road back to some extent. And, 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 and with my game, I'm, I've been practicing it my whole life because I come in more contact with trees and bushes and leaves than I do with the actual <laughs> people I'm playing with. <laughs> there you go. All right. You're well 
prepared. Well prepared for this moment, Mike Lynch. All right. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time. Plus, online, wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. And you can find me at LynchyWCVB. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports for Bloomberg Radio around the world.